to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we have got some listener questions to be answered. It is a packed show. I'm not even going to have a formal rambling introduction. I'm just going to say, here to help me answer those questions are Graham Ruthven. Hello, Graham. Hello, Taylor Rockwell. And Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello, Taylor. We're getting right to it, fellas. We're getting right to it. Uh, because I have to start off with an apology. Uh, Ryan Bailey informed me that the listener question form that we use to do these shows has not been populating. Uh, a website error, I am told, which has since been fixed. So if you have submitted a question in the last week or so, you may have to resubmit that one. I, I apologize. But we've got six or seven good questions for you, uh, starting off with a slightly heavy one, which is kind of the way you have to talk about the Qatar World Cup. This one comes from Tom Burks who asks, due to Qatar's issues as a World Cup host nation, traveling there as journalists covering the game might be off the table. What if instead you could all travel to meet up as a team? Where would you watch the games from? Would you have Ryan and Graham come watch from the U.S.? Or would uh, you have Taylor and Joe go watch from England and Scotland? Thanks, says Tom. Tom, thank (laughs) you for that question. A question genuinely so perfect that made me wonder if one of the co-hosts had submitted it. Graham, was this you? (laughs) Uh, it may have been, it's just been me and Ryan submitting questions. So you can tell the ones that Ryan has submitted over <laughs> yeah. the last 10 days. His are just like, where can I find a Starbucks in Italy? And like, <laughs> how can England win a World Cup in my lifetime? Why Chiellini so bad? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So we've not been getting listener questions, but we've, we've just been getting co-host questions for the last <laughs> 10 days. Um, unfortunately, Total, so- Total, so- Total Soccer Show will not be in Qatar. We couldn't get a room in, in one of the cruise ships that will be moored at Doha, Doha Harbour. And Joe wanted us to camp out in the desert like he does most nights in Arizona. Yeah, what's the but big deal? How it it's is. easy. <laughs> Yeah, Ryan needs his mod cons and his moisturizer and his BD and all, and all that sort of thing. However, <laughs> drum roll please. The four of us will be together in the one place for the majority of the group stage of the World Cup this November. Not only will we be together, we will be doing a live show. So Total mm-hmm. Soccer Show live from New York is on November 20th. So that's the opening day of the World Cup. It's at a venue called Littlefield in Brooklyn. Tickets are $25 plus booking fee. It starts at 8 p.m. Eastern and you can purchase through Eventbrite. So we'll be publishing the link to buy the tickets on Twitter. I think we can put the link in the show notes, can't we, Taylor? We can do that. And you can also search Total Soccer Show on Eventbrite.com as well. You You can find it that way. And I am very excited about it. We'll all be staying together in Brooklyn, recording in the same room, which will be a novelty (laughs) (laughs) having recorded this this show for the last two years or whatever in in different time zones and uh, yeah then we'll get to meet some of our lovely listeners and the world cup will be on and it's just all very exciting it's going to be truly fascinating. I think, for, first off, just because, as you mentioned, we've had different time zones. It's all been remote. You're having to kind of figure it out via Slack as to when we're going to record, what we're going to be talking about. To be in the same place, it definitely simplifies things. At the same time, Joe, you are, uh, of the four of us, the one most recently at university. Uh, <laughs> any any trepidation about living with, with uh, three other men for 10 days or so? 
I mean, if anything, it should make it easier for me than it should for you all. The way yeah. the way Graham said it made it sound like we're going to be recording and living in this one bedroom shack, um, which I'm thankful <laughs> is not the case. We will all have our own room, which which you know I think is a nice. Do we have touch our own beds? T- t- Taylor, you haven't told <laughs> yeah. us how many beds it is yet. Is it just one single bed? That's it. That's the catch, isn't it? Joe and I definitely get our own beds. Okay, but me and Ryan and I are, are sleeping together, are we? He snores and I do that really annoying twitching thing while I sleep, so uh, good luck. Uh, you you get bunk beds, but unfortunately one of them is going to be used for equipment storage, so it's going to be the two of you in the bottom bunk. Or you can have the top okay. bunk, it's your choice. It's just one okay, singular yeah. mic in the top bunk and Graham and Ryan in the bottom bunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is the setup. Good. This is the arrangement. It's too good. Yeah. So it's it's thankfully it's not going to be like this. At least not that I know. If maybe there's things I don't know, and I'm the one bunking up with somebody else. Who knows? But either way, I am. I'm seriously stoked about this. We've never gotten a chance to do yeah. the show together in the same place before. Taylor, you and I have recorded together in the same place. Taylor, you and Ryan have seen each other in the flesh. I've mm-hmm. never seen Grandma Ryan in the flesh. This is going to be a great chance no, for us to, seen me to just... No, me in the flesh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Graham doesn't leave his house except to go to the tackle shop for a haircut, yeah. as one does. So, I mean, it's going to be fun for us, selfishly, for the four of us to be able to see each other and, and watch these games together, which I think is going to make for some really good shows coming out in the TSS feed, but also to be able to do an event like this. We're really excited. Taylor, you've done this stuff before. I've never done something like this before. So being able to do a show with an audience there, we would love for you to come. Um, We'll do everything we can to make this the best show possible, talking about all sorts of different World Cup stuff, U.S. stuff. It's going to be a blast, and and I I truly hope that you come and watch. It's going to be so much fun. And and the venue itself looks great as well. You know, there'll be a bar there. Um, It's set up for this very specific thing for live podcasts and comedy shows and, and live shows. So... I echo everything that Joe said. I'm, I'm very excited about it. Uh, and I am already getting emotional, but I would say I think it's been like pre-pandemic that I recorded a podcast like in front of another person, like talking to another person back and forth in the same room. It's been a very, very long time, uh, obviously since, since COVID and then Daryl's passing. So to be in a room with like uh, three buddies and to get to talk about soccer and watch games together, like that, that was always my favorite part of covering these tournaments was a- as – like we we would joke about how we would often spend more time with each other than our wives or our families because there's three four games in a day and then you're recording and then maybe you go for a drink afterwards and then you do it all again the next morning and that can be I would say exhausting except that like we're not talking about coal mining here we're talking about no. watching soccer and then talking <laughs> about it but it's just it's really it's a really wonderful thing and it's a really it's a thing that makes me like remember how blessed I am to get to do this for a living and how just thankful I am that people listen, but also that I have good people to continue to do the show with. So to get to spend uh, a big chunk of time with, with, with three buddies in New York is really just a once in a lifetime opportunity. So I'm, I'm super excited just for that experience and for the shows we'll put out, but then for the live show and and how much fun that will be. And we really hope people can, can make the trip. Uh, It is Thanksgiving time. So I'm sure some people will be traveling and out of town, but hopefully uh, many people can join us and we will have ourselves a good evening. Traveling Uh, to New York, baby. That's where they're going to be. Yeah, buddy. Oh man, I'm so stoked. I'm so stoked. All right. Well, uh, we will uh, put a link to the to the what tickets in the show notes, as Graham said, uh, we'll continue to promote that. But we're really excited. We hope some people can make it, and 
Uh, we hope people tune in for our World Cup coverage. Uh, until then, we've got lister questions to do. Joe, I'm coming to you for this one. Uh, coming from Kenneth Seiden, who asks, Is the center referee the only one keeping track of time for stoppage time calculations, or is that role delegated? Should referee protocol or rules be adjusted to better calculate this for accuracy, perhaps to the fourth official or VAR official, or even adding an additional timekeeper. I like the the timekeeping official who just like a Flava Flav style has a giant clock around their neck. I'm assuming that's how they would track it. But Joe, uh, how is this all working out? They stand in the center of the field in the center of the center circle, just unmoving, and they continue to say under their breath, I am the time master. I think we should make that happen. I really like that. So from everything I, I saw in researching this question, it never ceases to amaze me, by the way, how many of these kinds of questions I, I have no idea what the answer is. Like I read the question and think, oh, I've watched a lot of soccer games and I've never once thought about this. So thank you, Kenneth, for, for helping me learn something through this process. I believe, correct me if anybody has something different, that there are two people involved, at least, in this whole stoppage time process. So the first person is the fourth official. This is from the Washington Post. The allowance for time lost is determined by the game's fourth official. This is from Football Bible. Fourth referees usually have two watches, one which they stop every time there's a stoppage of play, such as injuries, substitutes, and goal celebrations, and another one when they're running to count the time spent in each stop. So that, that kind of makes sense, right? One that allows you to tell how long the stoppages are and one to mark the stoppages. And then back to the Washington Post one more time. However, the final measure of stoppage time is at the discretion of the referee, right? The center referee. So from what I found, there's a couple of different folks involved, one that's giving the rough estimate and one that has the ultimate determination of what that estimate's going to be. Whether that is the best system or not, I think is a separate discussion that maybe we can have in just a second. But did anyone find a different pathway in terms of how stoppage time is counted? No, not not really. I, I found that the, the referee, similar to you, Joe, has the, the ultimate they've got it's their um role they are officially the sole timekeeper in a football match but they do at the at the top level on the elite level they will have help from the fourth official and even the the lines people as well because obviously at the top level they've, they've they're all in communication with each other but i think one of the main reasons that the referee in terms of ifab rules is the sole timekeeper is that if you go to a lower level, so if, for example, when I go to Sterling Albion to watch a game and eat a shredded chicken, a chili chicken pie, there is no fourth official at that level of the game. It's a referee and two linesmen. So there is nobody else to help really with keeping time. And there's no um, wireless communication system between the referees and uh, the referee and the lines people. So that is part of the reason I think the IFAB rules make that distinction that it is ultimately up to the referee because at lower levels of the game, they they don't have that help. And do we think anything needs to change? Joe, you had your timekeeper idea in the center of the pitch. I do love the idea of that person also counting time wasting. So as soon as somebody like lays down when they don't need to, he just loudly is counting in the background. One, two, and I'm making him the count (laughs) from Sesame Street now. But yeah, uh, I like that plan. It's the time master, first of all, Taylor. I'm going to assume that was a good-natured error and not on purpose. Um, (laughs) The the, the game I always come back to with this stuff, Taylor, you and I did this show. It was the U.S. against Honduras in the Nations League semifinals of the most recent batch of Nations League games. I guess it would be 2021 in the summer. And in that game, the U.S. needed a late winner, I believe from Jordan Pifak, to actually get the job done and go and play Mexico in the final that they would win. 
<laughs> and <laughs> good one, Graham. And I remember Taylor. We kept sort of an informal clock on stoppage time in the second half of that game, yep. and it was reaching something like twelve minutes of actual stoppage in play. And there was something like three or four minutes of stoppage time. Right? It was this massive gulf between what actually happened in the second half and what was awarded. That to me feels insufficient. It feels inaccurate. I'm not saying it has to be totally accurate, and maybe this is impossible to do. To, to do any sort of reforming outside of just keeping a clock and adding all of that time on the end of the game. I don't really want to do that, weirdly. But I think it could be beneficial if in certain situations where there is an excessive amount of in-half stoppages to increase or have like a, a minimum threshold that you hit. You know, if there's more than 10 minutes, as recorded by the fourth official on the sideline, you get five minutes of stoppage time no matter what, right? Which you don't really see. It's almost always two or three or occasionally four. It's so rare to have more than four minutes of stoppage time. So I don't know. I don't have the exact fix for this other than, of course, the time master. But something about stoppage time in soccer and some of those really excessive situations just doesn't quite feel right to me. And I don't know exactly what the best way is to get around that. I quite like the idea of using the VAR officials to at least keep a note of things while the match is happening because I do have some sympathy for the officials. All the stuff they've got to deal with, they've got to actually keep their eye on the game and the fourth official has to keep their eye on substitutions and the managers on the touchline and everything like that. And when you go into the FA site, the the things that are taken into account when deciding stoppage time are substitutions, assessments of injured players, removal of injured players, time-wasting, disciplinary sanctions being issued, any medical stoppages allowed by the rules, such as those for a drinks break and delays added for VR checks. So it's quite a lot of things when you're physically running around, and I can't imagine, even though the, the VR, uh, sorry, the fourth official isn't moving a great deal. I can't imagine they can have a little notepad or anything just whip out of their pocket. Um, I know the referee has his tiny little notepad, but that's not big enough to to uh, take any detailed notes down. So maybe use the VR officials. Um, the worst one I ever saw in terms of stoppage time was actually the 2019 Women's World Cup. It was Scotland-Argentina. And Argentina scored, I think that tournament was the first... Did we have VR at the 2018 World Cup? I think we did, we did didn't we? Yeah. So it must have been the first Women's World Cup um, where they had VR. And our, it, Scotland had been 3-0 up against Argentina. It went to 3-1, then to 3-2. To and then there was this gigantic delay at the end of the match for a VR decision. We're talking like, honestly, about eight minutes delay. Um, you could kind of tell that the officials maybe weren't used to, to, v, to VR, although we still get those delays. And Argentina scored three all, 94th minute. And then the officials, they kick off play. So there should have been about 10 to 12 minutes of stoppage time. They kick off play and then they just blew the whistle. It was unbelievable. Like there was absolutely zero stoppage time. I'm not even sure they'd played the full 90 minutes of the game, but that was that's probably the one that sticks in the mind that I thought to myself, there's got to be a better way of doing this. There's got to be a, be- a better way of keeping track of the clock. See, I was about to say, there's a point when they add, when they do the time added on that it feels like, oh, we've got four more minutes. There's five more minutes. Like something else exciting can happen. But when it's seven, eight, nine, it starts to feel excessive. Like now we're just adding on like another like 10% of the game. Uh, so I like that those officials, I guess, are in my corner and decided like, nah, four and a half's enough. That's fine. <laughs> so maybe, maybe having a mandatory period of extra time, of, of injury time isn't the way to go, which is what I was initially going to suggest. Uh, so I think for now, I think it is 
just going to have to be the Time Master. Joe, is the Time Master wearing a cloak to go with the giant uh, clock necklace? Or is, are there any other accoutrements that need to be mentioned? That's how I imagined it. I, okay. I want to give the Time Master some level of flexibility in how they decide mm-hmm. to go about dressing themselves. But a cloak feels right, obviously hooded. Um, other mm-hmm. than that, maybe the, the big clock chain. And then mm-hmm. they can sort of decide the rest. Crown or no crown? Ah, uh, it depends on the occasion. So if we're okay. talking a big, like Champions League final or Cup final, I think it would be fitting for them to have a crown. If we're talking like a, a Tuesday night MLS game during an international break, a crown just kind of feels like rubbing it in at that what, point. What if we got a gymnast, a, a gymnast, sorry, to kind of contort themselves into like a sundial and then point them in the direction <laughs> of the sun and kind of make the power of that? Now yeah. we're thinking. Now we're oh. now we're now we're on the right track. There we go. All right. Oh, all right. So I'm good. glad. That Ryan isn't here to keep this thing moving, so that I can uh, send us send us fully off the rails, and you all can then. I'm glad Ryan isn't here to do his job. Darn it! <laughs> um, let's let's keep it moving uh, to another question. This one from uh, Hayes Shores. Uh, Shores, sorry, Hayes. I apologize. The first one was easier than the second one. I know this is probably a really basic question. We like really basic questions. I should emphasize. Uh, but what are overlapping and underlapping runs? What are the advantages of each, and how? How, why are they employed? Uh, first, uh, Graham, before I come to you for this one, mm-hmm. uh, I really like this type of question sincerely because it's one of those things – I think you and Joe maybe had a really interesting conversation about tempo a while back and the mm-hmm. way it gets used or how we use it. Uh, I think that was in the same conversation talking about like pace versus quickness versus speed. Uh, and, and I think sometimes we we start using shorthand, not just us, but all podcasts, yeah. all like soccer media – and it's easy to overuse those and forget that not everybody knows what they are, but also misuse them, which is the thing that I'm sure I have done on more than one occasion. So, uh, Hayes, thank you again for this question. Graham, can you explain overlapping and underlapping runs, please? Yes. Yeah, so I would echo what you just said that we, we like these sort of questions because I was watching a, a, a TIFO video recently about two months ago and they were talking about a box midfield and I'm nodding along. Yes, that is a box midfield. And then I think to myself, I actually don't really know what that is. So it, it happens that, you know, there's always terms that you you need um, explained and, and we shouldn't take that for granted. So OK, now you have to explain box midfield. You have to explain box midfield before you do la- before you do runs. <laughs> you can't leave us so hanging box like that. A box midfield is, is quite a literal description, as I understand it, for when you essentially get four players who you have like a diamond midfield and you have a box midfield and, and it's the shape of a box. It's a very literal description, at least in TIFO terms. That's what they told me. So <laughs> going back to overlapping and under, uh, underlapping runs, let's start with what links these two things. So these two things... These two terms, sorry, should uh, they both refer to the forward run of a player from a more defensive starting position beyond the ball carrier. So an, an overlapping run is a, is a run that is made on the outside of the ball carrier. So essentially, if I'm the ball carrier, the overlapping run is the run that's made beyond me on the side of the touchline. And an underlapping run is, is a run that's made on the inside of the ball carrier. So again, if I'm the ball carrier... The underlapping run is the run that's made beyond me on the on the inside, on the uh, towards the center of the pitch, towards the the center circle. And the general aim of an overlapping and underlapping run is essentially the same as well. So it's to get in behind an opposition team and progress the team in possession further up the pitch. And they're a very effective way of creating overloads and giving a team a numerical advantage, whether that's against an opposition fullback with an overlapping run or player, um, or a, an opposition defender with an underlapping run. And in, in terms of some examples of players who were good at this, 
Cafu was one of the the first great overlapping fullbacks. He would he would go beyond the winger and get to the byline, where he would either provide a cross or a pass. And until then, fullbacks, at least in the mainstream, had largely been seen as defensive figures, and that changed quite a bit after Cafu. And you had players like Marcelo and Dani Alves. A lot a lot of Brazilians they know how to produce a, a good overlapping fullback. And then in terms of underlapping players. Um, Kieran Tierney is very good at this of course I was going to use Kieran Tierney as the example here so Tierney will often drive inside the ball carrier to to either look for the ball or he will carry the ball himself into those central areas having started in a wider defensive position and Zinchenko actually does this very well Um, Yalconcello does it very well for, for Man City We've we've seen it. You could go back decades, and we've seen underlapping runs. But it feels like with the fullbacks in particular, we're seeing more and more modern fullbacks making those those driving runs into the middle. Um, so with Arsenal, it's very much a feature of their game, and that is my understanding of those two things. Joe, for me, I, I think of it. Graham, thank you for that. For me, I think of it as. Like if you want your wingers to stay like boots on the chalk wide, then you need underlapping runs to exploit the gaps between the winger and the kind of uh, central midfielders. If you want uh, your winger cutting inside, then you want the overlapping run to give you width and make sure that you can kind of spread that defense out. Is that roughly how you see it? Yeah, it's about balance, right? So, so much of how the best teams in the world try to play soccer when they have the ball is about creating these moments where players are spread across the field, right? That's a key component of positional play, which is this philosophy of using the ball and creating numerical advantages, which is I don't know, kind of a big term, I guess, but just means if you have more players in one spot of the field than another, you can kind of rondo your way, you can kind of pass your way through them and move through them and progress towards the goal. A key idea of positional play is to have players in different lines of the field, both vertically and horizontally, which makes sense, right? It's just about spacing. We see that in all sorts of different sports. Pretty much every sport that uses the ball has some of those principles. So overlapping and underlapping runs are are ways for runners to go in and fill in the space around the ball carrier. So Taylor, you're right. If if you're a fullback and you're a winger on your side, so let's say you're the, the right back and the right winger, has the ball inside, you might make that overlapping run to draw attention away from them, to balance your spacing, right, to make life easier for the winger, or for you to run in behind and catch the defense out, right? That's just kind of the purpose of some of those vertical runs, regardless of whether they're overlapping or underlapping or or even anywhere near the ball carrier. Or if you're a fullback on the right side and, and the right winger has the ball way out wide, you might make that underlapping run to draw attention away from the winger and to create that same spacing idea to give your team the right balance and possession, you see, you see overlapping runs a lot. I think that's, that's been popular for a while now. It's a pretty basic idea. Of if, even if you go out and play like Sunday League with somebody who's, who's actually trying and still has the fitness to run, you'll see overlapping runs. Underlapping runs, maybe not quite as common, but you see them a lot when teams, when good teams are building up from the back and they might pass the ball out wide to the fullback in their own defensive third. When that pass, let's say it goes from the right center back to the right back, when that pass happens, a lot of times you see maybe the, the right-sided central midfielder, if we're in a 4-3-3, busting their gut to get up the field to provide an outlet for the fullback. And that even is a form of an underlapping run. I think we think of these things happening maybe in the attacking half, but they can happen in, in the defensive third as well in all sorts of different phases. Again, just to try and create yeah. space and balance and to help your teammates out. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about the overlap building out of the back, but you're absolutely right. That is a good way to do that. Graham, Kieran Tierney accelerated that as well, I'm assuming? He's excellent at everything, to be honest. <laughs> I mostly just including, wanted to give you an opportunity to say Including nice carrying a plastic Tesco bag into a football stadium. He's world-class at that. Is that what he did? Is that how, instead of like uh, Louis Vuitton or Dolce yeah. Gabbana, he went with that? All right. <laughs> yeah, it's his thing. It's been his thing going back to his Celtic days. So obviously all his teammates 
you you've, you've nailed it there with in terms of what the, yep. the 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 typical footballer apparel is or what their their um, luggage normally is walking into a football stadium. It's Louis Vuitton, it's all those brands, but Kieran Tierney just has a plastic Tesco bag that he uses. Is that so. what you all are going to be carrying for your live shows? Because I will probably be going the plastic bag route. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. All right. Same. Uh, same, same for Joe. All right, cool. I'm glad we're all on the same page. Uh, I'm glad we're all ready to take a break, and we'll be back with more listener questions in just a second. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. I'm assuming you never left. I make that joke every time. Next question comes from Guy Yedwab. Uh, Guy says, I'm still confused why everyone was giving Todd oh, Bowley yeah. a hard time about exploring player trades. I think there are a number of reasons why people are giving Todd Bowley hard times, some of them fair, some less fair. Uh, Guy continues, didn't Chelsea essentially trade Marcus Alonso plus cash for Aubameyang? Would it have been crazy for Chelsea to trade Lukaku for Skriniar plus cash or maybe Lukaku uh, plus cash for Skriniar? 
even if it turns out, uh, out to be as bad as a deal as the Alexis Sanchez Enrique Mkhitaryan swap, it seems like it's just another tool in the arsenal of a sporting director. Joe, coming to you for this one to start. Uh, what do you think? There's a couple different uh, things to kind of get to here. Starting, I think maybe with, is it unfair that people are going after Todd Bowley for suggesting trades or is it like how he suggested it? I think it's how and when is a big mm. part of this. So okay. if you think about the context here, Marina Granaskaya had just become no longer a Chelsea employee, right? Todd Bowley's coming in. This guy who's never worked in soccer before, who doesn't really have a ton of touch points with soccer, and now he's the one in charge of Chelsea's transfer business. And we, we sort of learn later as Thomas Tuchel is fired that he was trying to offload maybe too much of that onto Tuchel. But there's issues in the takeover and in the timing, right? So that's one bit of this is, is someone who was very well respected in the transfer world just left the club and you're replacing them with yourself, an American which, which has its own stigma, which I think is generally unfair in certain instances. But in this case, I think there was some, some understandable hesitation and questions around, okay, what it... What is Todd Bowley doing? Why is he making all these moves himself? Why did he decide that he was the right guy to do this job, the right person to do this job? There's questions around that. So that's one part of this is the context around the takeover, I think, generally made people hesitant about him and and sort of curious about what he was thinking. That's one bit. Another piece of this is in soccer, outside of MLS and other specific leagues, you literally cannot trade soccer players. So in effect... You might end up with a deal that on the outside looks like a trade where, you know, Mkhitaryan's going one way and Alexis Sanchez is going the other way. That stuff happens, right? We see swap deals happen, but it, it's not a trade. So this is a, a piece from ESPN. Then this is a quote. So they, they talked to Jake Cohen, who's a sports lawyer, who said in order to move a player in European football, it requires player consent. So a player has to agree to any transfer whether that be permanently or on loan, which makes it a little more difficult for teams to move players as they do in American sports. In European football, it's mandatory that players consent to move, and that's not something that can be negotiated away. That's sort of a fundamental right guaranteed by FIFA. Again, that's Jake Cohen, a sports lawyer. So Bowley's desire to trade players is is sort of possible, right? But it's not simple. It's not simple in the way that it is in a lot of American sports. So basically, the way this has to go is you have, to deal, you have to deal with contracts for every player involved. So let's just say it's a two-player swap. You have to deal with those players finding a contract that's suitable for themselves in a new destination. And you also have to work with the opposing team to find out if you can come to terms that agree in the transfer. So you're doing business with a club, and the club is doing business with your club. You're doing business with a player that's coming to you. You're doing player with the business that's leaving you. Same on the other side, tossing agents and intermediaries and all the other details that are involved in transfers. And basically, you just made your life a lot harder. So the other part of why I think people were, were sort of poking fun at Todd Bowley here is because it doesn't happen a lot. Trades or, or swap deals, which is the, the right term for them, don't happen a lot because they're really complicated and generally not super practical. So that that is combined with the context around him taking over, Granaskaya leaving him, anointing himself as interim sporting director. You add all of those things together and you sort of get a little bit of a better idea, or at least I hope, of why people were ridiculing Todd Bowley for, for that reported suggestion about the, the trade, ideally, or most likely, of Lukaku back to Inter Milan. Dude, that is a very good answer, Joe. Because we've, we've kind of talked about this previously, how I didn't think it was like that fair, the criticism thrown his way, that I understood kind of where you'd be coming from, why you might think that was a good idea, especially if you end up loaning Lukaku when you spent so much money on him or when the club spent so much money on him. The 
Right. The idea of like freedom of movement, you have to have uh, those sort of like guarantees in place. You have to have the, the player agree to that move had kind of slipped my mind. And I am now envisioning, not saying this is what happened, but I'm envisioning a scenario in which he comes in, has the kind of millionaire, billionaire mindset and is like, OK, what's this guy worth? OK, well, that guy's worth that. So let's just swap him. And it's a great bit of business. I don't see what the problem is here. And I can absolutely see a scenario in which he's kind of expecting it to work one way and assumes it does. And maybe that would be where some of the ridicule comes from if you are Assuming it's it's working one way and and failing to comprehend that it does not work that way and thus that approach does not work. Right. Maybe and, I'm and, reaching there, but I can then see how that would be a thing that would be more grounds for levity. Well, and one other bit of this too is you can make a swap deal like that's that you can do this stuff. It's happened before in history. But another component of, of part of why I think Bolio is ridiculed is. It just is, it's generally not the most practical thing either. You think about all the logistical hassle that it is to go through and, and go through that whole contract rigmarole that I, I just kind of mentioned. But then another part of this is basically you're limiting yourself to players that the other team has, which sometimes you need to do. Think about in the NFL. You only have a, a set number. You only have 31 other teams to trade with. That's it. That's the entire talent pool outside of free agents and practice squads and all of those little things. But in soccer, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of professional clubs all around the world that you can do business with. The idea of limiting yourself to only a deal that involves a player on the other team that happens to want your player, that gets rid of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of potential options except for one team and maybe one player. It's just not, a, it's not really a practical way to go. There are times where maybe it does work because that actually is exactly the player you want. They happen to play for Inter Milan and you're about to get them in and it's going to be great. But the odds of that happening are just so low and, and limiting that it's generally not, at least in my view, the most practical mm-hmm. way of doing business. I, I play fantasy football, which makes me obviously very well qualified to have this conversation. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think a, a, a thing that is pretty consistent is uh, people not wanting to do trades in fantasy football. Again, a great parallel. But a lot of that, uh, to my understanding, is basically because nobody wants to look stupid. Nobody wants to look like, oh, I swapped this guy for this guy, and now he's got the dude who won the league, and I've got a guy who's not even playing anymore. Graham, do you feel like that is part of the hesitation to do swap deals in football, is that nobody wants to look like the one who gave away a a 100 million pound player for a zero pound player? Sort of. I I feel like, so first of all, Joe nailed everything there about the mechanics of why (laughs) swap deals uh, don't tend to happen in in soccer. So good job there, Joe. I I think there's something in what you're saying there, Taylor, but I also think that football clubs, um, and this is linked to what um, Joe was saying about limiting your 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 pool and to your talent pool that you're you're fishing from. They don't really like the the lucky dip nature of trades, and I think that's one of the things that Todd Bowley got wrong. And look, maybe maybe this should happen more often in football. But him going to Inter Milan and basically being like, right, well. Uh, this is the, these are the players that we like, so we'll take a, a we'll take our pick from these players. Like that is a very American sports mindset, and it, it it it's not very common in soccer because clubs in soccer like to have more autonomy in the way that they target specific players. And um, yeah, it, it, I think the instinct when Bowley comes along and says we'll take any of these five guys, the instinct is to think he doesn't really know what he wants, and that doesn't play well in in soccer. My my knowledge of like American sports is is limited, but I think of like Moneyball and the scene where Billy Bean and um, Jonah Hill, I forget his actual character name, Jonah Hill, are trading yeah, for uh, Rincon, and they're, and they're trying to make Brand, this trade happen. Yes, yeah, that sounds about right. 
they're trying to make this trade happen with Rincon and they're having to move a few pieces before they mm-hmm. can get him and they're phoning up at other GMs and they're basically just asking like who have you got I think that comes down to the limited talent pool because they have to they have to shift pieces to get a certain player and you don't really get that in soccer unless it's dominoes with transfer fees and you basically need to raise funds it's just a much simpler system in, in European soccer I think yeah, and I think another key, continuing that scene, it's him sort of shopping the player to different teams that he knows he's not going to end up trading him to, but he has to generate the interest or take away one player yeah. that they're involved. And so, but I think that is all representative of a system in which everybody is functioning in that trade model and understands how to utilize it. And if you're a person coming in trying to be Billy Bean and make those trades happen and nobody else functions that way, you're just going to look a little bit like a laughing stock, which is maybe where we find Todd Bowley. Graham, would it be smart for him to just maybe not suggest things for a little while and let other people at Chelsea uh, (laughs) take the helm for a while? On one side, I do feel a little bit sorry for for Todd Bowley because... Uh, a little bit because (laughs) I I think he just wants to come in and show that he's got ideas and and new ideas are not necessarily a bad thing he has just voiced so far a lot of bad ideas and so maybe he should just take a back seat because he's not doing much for the uh, stereotypical image of an American billionaire owner in the Premier League so maybe just uh, sit this one out for the next couple months Todd All right. Well, Todd will maybe sit some things out. Graham, you will not be sitting out this next question because I'm coming to you. Uh, From Jacob Court, uh, Man United recently touting signing Anthony and noting how many Brazilians are on the team now prompted a thought. Is it as big of an advantage as people may think to have so many players from the same country at the same club? While it would seem like natural benefits, language, culture, etc. should exist, there could be things that could cause tension that only exists to those players. I think... It's a great question from Jacob. Uh, I I, I would say there's a few different things here. The first thing I would go with, and then Graham, I want to hear your thoughts, is just Mm -hmm. that I think part of it is that it's Brazilians. And there is such an immediate, if you think, like, who's the best national team in the world, most people are going to say Brazil. And I think anytime a club brings in a Brazilian, there's that air of like, oh, this guy's going to be the next big thing. He might be the difference maker. And so I think anytime a club starts signing Brazilians, especially Manchester United, who haven't had as many in the past, I think that's probably part of it. It is a marketing thing. It is a, hey, we signed this guy. He might be really exciting. Uh, So I think that is part of it. That's my jumping off point for you, Graham, to then answer the rest of Jacob's question. Yeah, so my answer to this question might actually be um, a bit boring because I think it can be an advantage and a disadvantage depending on the people. So yes, there is more of a chance that I will share a a cultural... um, what's the word, commonality with with someone my own nationality. But there is, there's absolutely no guarantee at all that I will share a bond with them. There's 6 million people in Scotland and a large portion of them are uh, Dunderheads. Whereas you guys, two Americans, one Englishman and Ryan is the only Dunderhead among us. So uh, I I think um, just because of a a nationality doesn't mean that I will actually have like a bond with them. I think think language would be a tangible advantage to having a group of players from the same country at the one club. Um, That makes creating a team spirit easier. But the, the downside of this, and we've seen... We've seen this with Manchester United actually recently, as it can create um, clicks within the within the dressing room. Um, Eric Bailly was recently speaking about how at Manchester United it was very much the English player with under Solskjaer it was very much the English players, and then the rest, um, which is not ideal. You don't really want that. 
um, that doesn't do much for the dynamic but I think it, de- it depends case by case there are some clubs where it has clearly worked in the past and others where it hasn't been so successful I think it depends on the actual people sorry that's probably a really boring no, answer but I think- um I just, I'm just a little bit uncomfortable with saying, you know, I'll put all the brilliant Brazilians together and they'll get on together and that'll yeah. create the, that'll create the the best dynamic. Maybe it will, but equally, maybe it, maybe it won't. You know, maybe those Brazilians within that group don't really have that that See, bond. Yeah, that that's that's the thing for me. First of all, with the clicks at Manchester United, I remember Roy Keane talking about how whenever they would have players come in, if it was like a Brazilian and then two Portuguese players and they were all speaking Portuguese, that they would break them up and have them go sit at different tables with different groups because they didn't want those sort of clicks to form. They wanted everyone to be one team. So I think you're right that the the click component and, and like uh, basically the locker room fracturing can be an issue. But I also think there is an idea of within like just because they're from the same country doesn't mean that they have the same beliefs. Uh, it's certainly not possible timeline wise, but like uh, famed Brazilian Socrates, who was very leftist and academic, I'm guessing would not get along with Lucas Moura, who is still an outspoken supporter of Bolsonaro. Yeah. And and I think, assuming that it's like, oh, we got a bunch of Brazilians, they're all going to have uh, Jogo Benito, and we're going to be the best team in the world, you can have plenty of squad uh, conflict, just ask the Brazil national team from time to time. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that that's a great point. Or France. Yeah, or France, right? And even like, uh, like Belgium, you would have historically the Flemish-speaking component and the French-speaking component, I believe. And they wouldn't get along and didn't like each other. So I think just because you have those certain commonalities in place doesn't necessarily mean uh, you're going to have a a world-beating squad. I mean, Bruno Fernandes and Cristiano Ronaldo is a a, a good example. Um, Because even though Bruno Fernandes, he... Fernandes always speaks very very warmly about Ronaldo and you don't really get much the other in the other direction so I, reading between the lines I'm not sure Bruno Fernandes and Ronaldo are the best of pals despite the fact that they play for the same national team and now the same club team um, so there's, that's an yeah. example of how there's just no guarantee of that, that bond among players from the same country Joe I feel like uh, Graham and I have been sort of focused on the potential drawbacks to it do you see any other, other drawbacks or do you see positives in having players from the same country and the same team yeah, it totally depends, right? I think mm-hmm. that's that's pretty clear, Graham. You said it very well. I don't need to retread that. There are other possibilities here of things that could benefit, right? So you have countrymen playing together. You, Graham, you mentioned language. Another bit could just be the time they end up spending together. So if these people do actually like each other, they could create some positive chemistry going back and forth to national team camps, right? I think about Leeds right now with, with by all accounts, Brendan Aronson and Tyler Adams seem to get along well. I think there could be a benefit to them as they continue to grow and build their partnership, which could in turn help the team traveling back and forth to Germany and to Spain and then back to England and playing these games and going to the World Cup. I mean, those create sharing experiences, create spots. And so there is benefit there. There can be benefit there. But then you run into the same problem, national teammates that don't like each other that, that also maybe happen to play for the same clubs. It's too difficult to say having players from the same country together is either all the time a good thing or all the time a bad thing. It just really depends on these relationships. It does. It certainly does. I would say one thing from my personal experience, when we were in Turkey, having people who were American or spoke English who had been there for a while did make things significantly easier, not just from the cultural side of things. We did have a Thanksgiving celebration, but because they knew where to get things that you needed. If you wanted a certain product, like Honey Nut Cheerios, I think is the one that we were most missing, even though I don't think I've had it since we lived in Turkey. Like we had friends who knew where to get that, knew the, the specific supermarket that would have that. And I can see, especially with 
uh, a lot of the negative stuff you hear about playing in the north of England uh, if you are from South America. Um, like having people who maybe are like have already lived that and know how to do their approximation of a barbecue or a cookout, I think that probably uh, makes a difference. But also just having people who know where to find the items you need or how to get around the city, that probably – just little ease of transition probably makes things easier. So I could see a world in which having like like a player already there almost being the ambassador probably goes uh, some way towards easing in a new player. Yeah. But then there's always the personal conflicts that have to be factored in for sure. I now want to know what your American shopping list was in Turkey. It was just like uh, Reese's Pieces, Mountain Dew, uh, Harley Davidson. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it, Harley Davidson. Uh, it was, it was a, like a Gibson way, guitar. It was way more depressingly American. Like I, th- like I think it was actually bacon because Turkey, ninety eight percent Muslim. Uh, not a lot of pork flying around in Turkey. No. So finding an approximation of bacon was always. Uh, the challenge, I'm trying to think what the other things were. I think like medicine, uh, w- which at the time we thought was way, way, way more difficult, but it turns out <laughs> way, way, way easier in in not the United States to get medicine. Um, yeah. A Yankee man. candle. Yes. Crayola cr- crayons. <laughs> man, I'm trying to remember now. It's been so long. There were definitely some things. You're right. Probably like the candy bars was one. Uh, just like eating healthy bacon mate. and candy bars. What, what more do you need? What more do you need? Oh, I remember <laughs> – a recipe I was trying to make for the first time called for uh, corn syrup, and everybody was, like, disgusted by that. And that was when I realized, like, oh, right, America still has our things that we put into food that nobody else ever would. Right. I don't <laughs> think I've used corn syrup since uh, for that reason. So, uh, yeah, you got to experience other cultures. Don't just live in your own. Uh, experience other ones. Uh, have a good time. Play for different uh, clubs around the world. That's my advice to all yeah, of the, you, the many you, people out there. Yeah, I'll get you right on, on that. One of those, you lived in one of those chrome trailers uh, that, you know, is <laughs> outside here. Area 51, yep. mm-hmm. yeah, with your Harley and your Skittles and your Yankee Candle. This I is mean, giving us a really good idea of how Graham views America. I'm really liking this. I'm really liking <laughs> it's, it. It's basically Graham sees it as like Terry Crews' character from Idiocracy, just like the American flag bandana, driving the giant motorcycle, also being president of the United States, uh, I believe shooting a machine gun. Is that about it, Graham? Yeah, I assume that's the sort of stuff we're going to be doing in Brooklyn. <laughs> I think is Brooklyn I, not like that? I no, think, have I got the wrong impression I, of Brooklyn. I think rural like Arizona and the desert is probably more like okay. that than say Brooklyn. Yeah, come on over, Graham. Come on. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's how we'll know Joe is here. We'll be on Broadway in Brooklyn, and the three of us will be together. Oh, here's Joe coming down the street, and he's Harley. Oh, I'm excited for for us to have uh, at, at the live show Graham have to dress like what he thinks the stereotypical American dress likes, <laughs> and we'll see how that goes. Like Until then, <laughs> we're gonna take one more break. We'll be back uh, to finish out with two more questions. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham, and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show, and I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic, and all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you're connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can 
very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back. Next question, the penultimate question, comes from Forrest Lyell. Uh, With the World Cup being in the middle of the season and players trying to play themselves into their respective squads, what kind of drop-off could we see after the World Cup when leagues resume? Joe, coming to you for this one. Okay, so I I think we could see a very real drop-off for club teams. I think there's always a dip at the start of league seasons after big international tournaments. I think about last World Cup, Neymar was very late in returning for Brazil. Um, and so that's just one example. But a lot of players that go deep in that tournament, or even players that just play in the tournament, are going to come back and there's going to be variance in who's fit, who's ready to play, and how long they're able to play. And, and again, when they're even back and involved in the club team after spending time with the national team. So that's a piece of this. It, it, sometimes for summer World Cups, you'd have players going on vacation and then coming back to their squad. So they would have a little bit of a break. It's going to be different this time around. That was my thesis going into research. So I, I wrote all that before I researched. And I, you know, pleasantly surprised. Maybe I didn't look for stuff that didn't agree with my philosophy. I don't know what I don't know what the issue is here, but I did find things that supported that general idea, which I think is logical. So Pinnacle was a website that, that ran a lot of these calculations, found that in the season that starts right after the World Cup, Premier League teams with lots of World Cup players had a drop-off in points per game relative to Premier League teams with relatively few. World Cup players. So let me explain. So they had data from the 1998, 2002, 2006, 2010, and 2014 around those particular World Cups, all five of those. Those are the only ones they examined. And teams, Pinnacle deemed with above average World Cup representation, had a drop in their average points per game in the first 10 games of the season compared to the first 10 games of the season before the World Cup. So think 1998 Premier League season after the World Cups already happened in that summer. So the season starting in, in 1998 in the fall. Then the year before, in 1997, teams with more players at the World Cup relative to the average had a drop-off in their points per game compared to teams that didn't have more more than average World Cup players. So that was a drop-off compared to one of those groups versus the other. So it seems like that happened the majority of the time. It seems like we'll see a drop-off in club soccer and maybe even a more significant one. This is where I don't know exactly what's going to happen because I would be shocked if PSG, as an example, to continue that, didn't drop off a little bit in late December when Ligon returns. So Messi, Neymar, Mbappe, other players at the World Cup. Marco Verratti is going to be fresh, uh, fresh as a daisy, but everybody else, you know. So they're still going to win the league. They're still going to win Ligon because they're PSG. And even without all of those players, they still have more talent than the rest of Ligon. But there's going to be a drop. How big? I don't know. Bigger than Summer World Cups? Maybe. I think there's a real chance of that. Bayern could drop points because they have a lot of World Cup players, which could be very interesting this season because I still think they have more talent than the rest of the Bundesliga, but the start in terms of results has not been at all what they needed. So I think there will be a drop. The data has proved that. Exactly how much more extreme, or if it's more extreme, maybe it's less. How much the drop-off will be relative to past Summer World Cups, we don't have the data to know that, and so we can sort of guess, and I started to do that a little bit, but really, it's going to be fascinating, I think, to find out what exactly that's going to look like. 
I wonder if there could be an emotional and psychological drop-off for players as much as anything else. So, Joe, you highlight players could be missing, and I think that is entirely fair. I believe the World Cup final is on the 18th of December, and the Premier League season gets up and running again on Boxing Day, which is the 26th of December. So that's really not a big, a long stretch for players to get back into their club teams and get involved. And there will be players that are missing that are involved in the latter stages of the tournament. But even those that that are involved, as I say, I wonder if there's an emotional drop-off because players have spent months trying to play their way into, into form, as, as Forrest que- says in his question, building up for the tournament. And normally players have some time off after a major tournament too relax and then get themselves back into the right mindset again for the start of the new season certainly in a, in a European sense I know it's a bit different in in MLS but nonetheless this year they, they they're not going to have that they're going to go straight back into their into their day job so to speak and and I just wonder whether that that um that will give players kind of emotional whiplash where where one day they're they're in a World Cup final or a World Cup semi final or whatever, and then a week later they're back to their yeah. club teams and then they're in the Premier League. I do wonder if we'll see a drop off there as well. That's a really good point because when I think of a player who had like an obvious mistake at a World Cup, sadly Chris Wondolowski will always be one that comes right to mind, missing a a, a, a pretty. Not a tame shot, but could have scored a goal, certainly. And I think about a player like that, who let's say it's it's uh, a Brazilian player and they get eliminated in the semifinals because he misses a chance or something like that. And then he goes back to his club where his manager is instantly like, hey, that doesn't matter anymore. Get right back into it. You're right, Graham. I could see him like still having to process that one on the global stage, getting like DMs on Instagram and Twitter from people telling him he's terrible, and then being thrust right back into a, a really competitive club situation where if he's not at the peak of his game... He's not going to be starting or there's going to be questions about should he be playing. I I can absolutely see a lot of mental fatigue and a lot of tumult at yeah. the end of that World Cup. And and even players who have done well at the World Cup as well, there could yep. be that that drop off. So I think I've maybe spoken about this before. I've used this example on, on, on the pod before. But in tennis, if you have a very tight set and it goes to a tie break and you've got all this emotional energy that's built up. And then even if a player wins that that set, it's very common for the start of the next set, that player to have a dip and for the other player to come back. That's a, a thing that gets talked about in tennis all the time. So you could have a footballing equivalent of that where with just one week between the World Cup final, even a player that wins the World Cup going back into the club, into the club game, into the club season, they could suffer from a, a similar sort of thing. It'd be really interesting to just track like the best performers and like the most disappointing performers and see how the rest of their season goes once the club season resumes because it is just going to be difficult to really predict all that much. Joe, I like that you ran through things and still ultimately concluded that PSG would win the title because they're PSG. I think that's probably pretty accurate. <laughs> uh, but but it will be it will be really strange because obviously we'll get injuries, we'll get additional fatigue. I think we'll get coaches sort of. Some coaches will probably take a armor on the shoulder approach. Some managers will take a screaming in their face, get back into it sort of approach. And I, I really could see it being a very all over the place finish to this season. Uh, any other specific predictions we want to make about this one? Any other thoughts on this question? Um, just that there will be absolutely no issues with the World Cup, nor its scheduling or how it affects club teams and players <laughs> whatsoever. Everything's going to be really good and tidy and there aren't going to be any problems. Is that you being a representative for Qatar when they were bidding for this and promised it would be in the summer? He's been bought. <laughs> I just can't believe we're doing this. Like, yeah. I still can't believe yeah. that we're doing this. 
I can't imagine that leagues are happy about it. I can't imagine that pretty much anybody is happy about it except for Qatar and FIFA and people that got rich from this whole thing happening. The women's Euros probably pretty thrilled that uh, yeah. this is happening now instead of this past summer, I would say. Uh, but out. yeah, I, I think it is, it, it is definitely, Joe, I'm glad you said that because it's one of those things that now that it's the reality, it's easy to just be like, all right, well, here it is. Here's how it's going to be. And I think we should continue to point out that it shouldn't be in Qatar for any number of reasons. And those aren't just like they don't have a soccer history because neither did the United States. I've made that point before. I will make it again. There are many, many other reasons why this World Cup does not make sense. But it is still a World Cup. And so we're going to do our best to compartmentalize and be excited about the competition and then see what happens afterward, because we have the luxury of just talking about it, not experiencing in it, playing in it, managing in it, uh, pro- like processing all the emotions that go into being involved in it. Uh, so maybe we'll just try to have a sympathetic ear. Does that sound good to you, too? I'm down. Yeah. But maybe even two so. sympathetic ears between the four of us, I think. We can oh, manage that. all right. Okay. But between, between, and between, yeah, the four of us will have one sympathetic ear. I like that joke. Good call. Okay. Fair uh, all right. Final question, uh, which I did pick, uh, comes from Derek Dickinson. What does Taylor think about the other shows taking the <laughs> Wikipedia game from him? Uh, yeah. So Daryl and I came up with the Wikipedia game, uh, which is a, like a trivia show that we would basically do when we didn't feel like doing a ton of research or having to watch a bunch of games. It was a way to just sort of, uh, have fun, uh, maybe interact with some listeners uh, and the like. We have not played it in a very long time. I think we played it somewhat recently, the the the, the four of us, and maybe we can we can do a bit more of that during our live shows. It is strange when I've heard other shows do approximations of it, and I think from a like vanity side, and with the credit, uh, so there's definitely that. I'll be honest up front and say there's definitely that emotion. <laughs> but I think the this lo- is how this is how the football podcast equivalent of the Anchorman parking lot yeah. fight scene. <laughs> this is how it starts, yes. isn't it? This is this is the origin. Yes, this is it right here. The, the podcast beef. But the the honest answer though is that like we stole the idea from it from Doug Loves Movies, where he would play. The Leonard Malton game where you're trying to guess a movie based on, I think, the actors in it, I think is how they would do it. Or you had to guess the actors in the movie. Uh, Either way, he stole that from Name That Tune, which is like a long existing game. So it's all just sort of inspired by. Um, And with that in mind, I think it goes back to us like wanting to talk about soccer in a fun way and and make it fun and interesting for listeners. And so I think anybody who's doing that, more power to them. And if that means everybody's playing the Wikipedia game, then I love it because it means that there's fun soccer content out there and also that the next time we play it, I will be better at it because uh, I'll be able to cheat and use their research as my own. So I think uh, anybody who wants to find a way to make talking about soccer more fun, more lively, more engaging, I think uh, that is always a positive thing. what what is actually going on here is our Brooklyn live event is just a, a tester for the Wikipedia game world tour yep. at MetLife Stadium. <laughs> I mean, you joke, I would be down. Except that what people don't realize is when you edit the Wiki- the Wikipedia game shows require so much more editing than a usual Total Soccer Show episode. Every now and then we'll have like shows where we have multiple mistakes. Those are. Not as often. Man, I should be knocking on wood. But Wikipedia game is challenging. (laughs) And the reason why you end up filling in so much time with clues is because people want to win. And so it will be, Graham, coming to you, how many clubs? Um, Six? Yeah. Joe, how many? (laughs) 
uh, like it, th- those gaps add up. So y- y- you got to strategy get the, takes uh, thought. The strategy in. takes time, right? You got to yeah, think it through does. some of these it totally things. Does. Victory and, and is more spot, important than the back end editing for sure. <laughs> well, I was just gonna say. So on the spot though, like you really like you know you can only see the lights. You focus on the wrong details. Uh, a live show, I think, playing Wikipedia game would just be a lot of silence and ums and ahs yeah. as the audience <laughs> screams the answer from the crowd. I, I, I think. I don't know how well it would work, but maybe we could try that one. I, I think we're still... Yeah, there would be heckling, yeah, I think. For sure. Life, sure. Most... Just eat the damn orange. <laughs> what? Just Simpsons. Oh. No, that's Simpsons <laughs> reference. There it is. Thank you for satisfying. I, I had not met the quota that Ryan has established in his contract as uh, yeah, I need legally to required. That. Yeah, I need to take on that responsibility that he's not here. Have you, Charlotte, Wimbledon, uh, you've already got Starbucks in there. Tennis, anything else we need before we call this one quits? Uh, no, I think that's it. All I right. think that's the bingo card. All right, cool. <laughs> cool. Um, well, Joe Lowry, thank you for uh, uh, bearing with my rambling at the end of this show. I don't know if we've gone over an hour, but that's about the time that I usually start with the rambling. Uh, I think we're right around that one uh, at time of recording. So, Joe, thank you for many things today. Taylor, you got it. And Ryan, we love you. And finally, listeners, come to our live show. Link in the description. Yeah. Yeah. Graham Ruthven, uh, thank you, my friend. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Uh, Ryan Bailey, thank you, as always, for being a wonderful sport, even in spirit. Listeners, thank you so much for sticking with us and listening, and hopefully at least a few of you will be there at that live show. We can't wait to see you. We can't wait for that. Many more shows in the feed this week, but for now, we'll talk to you soon.